to the Plant Pod. Grow your mind, feed your soul. I'm your host, Carly Bodrug, journalist turned food blogger and the girl behind the popular Instagram account, Plant You. Have you ever felt like you simply weren't good enough? Maybe for that new job as a parent or just as a human showing up in your daily experience? Or maybe you feel like a fraud and you're waiting for the shoe to drop and everyone to figure out that you're just faking it. These are feelings I know all too well, and if you can relate, sit tight as today we're delving into imposter syndrome, high-functioning anxiety, and how to cope in our fast-paced world. For this episode, I'm sitting down with the incredible Dr. Kelly Vincent. Dr. Vincent is a licensed clinical psychologist in California. She's also an author, yoga teacher, and the co-owner of a co-working space for therapists and holistic providers. Her areas of clinical focus are helping to support and guide those who struggle with anxiety, depression, trauma, and self-esteem. She incorporates a mind, body, and holistic approach as she is deeply passionate about treating the whole person. If you enjoy this episode, your five-star reviews literally mean the world to me. If you feel like this could be valuable to someone else as well, I encourage you to take a screenshot of this episode and share it in your stories, taking me and Dr. Kelly Vincent so that we can share the love. Without further ado, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Vincent to the plant pod. Hi. I think a good place to start would be hearing about your journey and why, as a psychologist, you've chosen to focus on anxiety and imposter syndrome specifically. So I'm a clinical psychologist and I practice in Encinitas, California. Um, And I would say that with a lot of therapists, I think we get into specific topics or um, different clinical issues, either based on our own experiences or maybe family members, or we just have sort of some sort of personal interest tied to it. Not all the time, but most of the time. And I think with imposter syndrome, that was something that I completely related to during my graduate school experience. So I actually started right out of undergrad. I started my career in digital marketing. Um, And I did that for about five, six plus years. And then I experienced what I call a quarter life crisis and decided that this was not what I wanted to do. It wasn't, you know, fulfilling me in a way that I thought it would. And psychology was something that just always pulled, pulled. And I was just so curious about people and their stories, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, I decided to do a 180 and just go to back to school for psychology, which I had no experience. Um, I majored in marketing, business marketing. So I hadn't even seen a therapist before. Like I zero, zero experience in psychology. So let's just say that first day of graduate school, the imposter experience showed up and it showed up loud. Um, And I didn't know what it was. I didn't have a name for it. I just kind of assumed, yeah, I'm a fraud. I don't belong here. Um, and then eventually I shared it with one of my favorite professors, I think my second year. And she's like, oh my gosh, Kelly, like that's a thing it's called imposter syndrome. You right. So, so since then, um, you know, I've always taken an interest in it and it also with anxiety too, cause you know, those two are very parallel. Um, and then it just kind of expanded from there and then just started to recognize and realize that so many of us experience this and it's not just graduate students it can be in any any form um and especially like in the professional world too it comes up a lot but it can be when you're a new mom or it can be um just any situation where it's just brand new and and super overwhelming so it kind of just then led into my clinical practice just sort of organically and naturally um and, you know, with, I have an Instagram account and I talk a lot about anxiety on there. And then I started to talk about imposter syndrome and was like, whoa, the response was really big. And everyone's like, I, I so get it. Or I so relate to that. So then it kind of just, you know, built from there. Um, but yeah, it was rooted in, in my own experiences and it, it still pops up from time to time. Do you mind giving us like a high level definition of what imposter syndrome actually is? If someone is listening is like, what the heck is that? Yeah. And it's a little tricky because the word syndrome makes it feel really intense and really scary. And and I like to usually say the imposter experience or um, the imposter phenomenon. So essentially the high level definition is, is this inability to internalize your success. Um, and it's this idea that you are, you are fraud in kind of whatever you're doing. So maybe my first therapy session with my first client, I'm like, I'm a fraud. They're going to eventually find out that I'm a total fraud. I don't know what I'm doing. Oh my gosh. Right. And then it spirals into an anxiety 
type of episode, if you will. So um, yeah, it's, it's really a struggle to recognize your worth, recognize your skills, your abilities, your strengths. Um, and originally, just to give you kind of the backstory, originally this term was coined back in the 70s. I think it was like 1978. These two women researchers were working with a ton, I think it was 150 really successful women, like accolades for days. Um, and they started to notice this collective experience amongst these women that they were having these fraudulent feelings, that they didn't belong there, that they weren't smart enough, et cetera, et cetera. And so out of that um, sort of anecdotal research or observational research, they coined this term imposter phenomenon. And then in recent years, I don't know when it switched to syndrome, but, um, but it's not a technical syndrome. It's not formally a diagnosis and, or anything like that. But, so I don't know who did the syndrome part. Um, but essentially, this, this phenomenon is, is very real. Does it disproportionately impact women or can imposter syndrome impact just about anybody? Yeah, so that's a good question. So originally with that research, with those two researchers, they were looking at just women uh, um, subset and population, but they later found um, that men as well experience it and then later found it's across genders, it's across ethnicities. Essentially, if you're human, <laughs> you can definitely um, feel this way about yourself at one point. So yeah, it, it's anyone, anyone can experience it. Yeah, it's not just women. One of the reasons I was personally really interested in this topic is that when I switched my career from journalism to a food blogger, I definitely felt that imposter feeling. But at the same time, I had no culinary background. I very little experience in blogging. And some of that has got to be valid feelings of inexperience. So how do you kind of separate whether it's imposter syndrome or you're really just an amateur? Yeah, uh, yeah. And, it, and it's a good separation. And I think it's, it's the way that we're framing it, right? So yes, it could be true that the skills aren't as well developed or the expertise isn't, you know, as, as detailed or whatnot as maybe someone that went to culinary school or someone maybe that's had a psychology background their entire career or whatnot. So it's true that when we get into something brand new and we're stepping outside of our comfort zone, that we're going to feel a little fraudulent. Like we're going to feel a little like, oh, fish out of water here. So that's normal. And I think the problem is, is that we think it's not normal or we think that there's something innately wrong with us. And then we deem ourselves flawed or broken or whatnot, when in reality, it's actually a very normal thing when we're starting something new. So I think it's, it's imposter syndrome. You know, it's funny because it's like, well, shouldn't we all experience that when we're starting something brand new? Probably, right? Because because we are just stepping into these these new skill sets and these new experiences, um, and then over time, it lessens and lessens and lessens as we get more experience or we you know um, take classes or whatever it may be. So, again, that's why I think it's better to say the imposter experience versus like a disorder or a syndrome because I think it's a complete shared human experience. And they actually did. Um, this one study they talked about, um, they found that 70% of us will experience it at one point or another. And that study was done in the 80s. So I assume, or I'm making a, a you know, safe assumption that if they redid that or replicated that study, it probably would be much higher because it, it's very normal to feel the way that you feel when, when you are doing something totally different. What are some of the symptoms, and symptoms might not be the correct word, but mm -hmm. that accompany imposter syndrome to know that that is what you are kind of experiencing? Yeah, so it can definitely range, and I think it parallels very much with an anxious experience, right? So maybe the first time, like, you put yourself out there as a food blogger or someone contacted you to do some sort of collaboration, you're like, oh, gosh, like, it, you know, do, do I have the skill set for this? Like, are they going to ask me these tough questions? I know the first time I did, like, a podcast, I was like, I'm not experienced enough. I can't do this. So it's a lot of self-doubt, right? It's a lot of overthinking, rumination. It's a lot of just pure worry and fear um, that someone's going to see you and deem you as some sort of fraud. Um, it can be, I mean, it can even manifest very physically, right? And that's kind of what anxiety does to us. It, our physical sort of stress response um, goes, goes off and our sympathetic nervous system just kind of goes haywire and that fight flight comes in so we can get racing heart. We can start to sweat. We can start to feel like this muscle tension. So I think, you know, in general, when it comes to like 
more of the psychological piece, it's just a lot of self-doubt. It's a lot of minimizing your success. Like, um, you know, say something actually you do really well and, and you get a lot of accolades for it. You might say like, oh no, it was luck or, oh, they just, you know, they didn't have anybody else. And, you know, right. So you minimize that, that um, your own success in it. Um, that's a big piece of it. And yeah, I think each person kind of experiences it a little differently, but um, it's a lot of stuff going on kind of in your thought process and how and how you see yourself. Do you find in your practice that this disproportionately impacts those who identify as women? And if so, do you have your own theory of why that would be? Yeah, yeah. And that's a good question. So I actually, um, when I was doing a lot of research um, for the course that I created, this gal, Valerie Young, she wrote a book on it. She's been doing research for decades on this topic. Um, I think she did her dissertation originally and then later went on and did more research about it. But she goes into depth about the, the um, it affecting more women than men, because if we think about like things like how we're socialized, right? How women are socialized, how um, the gender difference, differences between men and women in business worlds. And, um, you know, women definitely haven't necessarily always gotten a seat at the table <laughs> over the over the decades. So I think there's elements where women in certain industries, where it's predominantly men and often white men, um, it can ignite this feeling of fraudulent feeling. So yeah, I think women even though men and, and, and a lot of other people can experience it as well, I think there's a tendency to, to sort of it to impact women a little bit more because the, you know, the way that we were conditioned or the way that society is telling us to be or um, so, yeah, there's, there's so many elements and she actually in her book goes into detail of all those different potential um, reasons as to why a woman would be a little bit more impacted. Do you think these feelings of being an imposter can actually start to hold people back from accomplishing their dreams or pursuing the life that they want? And at what point then should someone seek further help? Totally, 100%. I think if you start to notice that you're pushing away opportunities or that you're kind of shying away from things that you're very much qualified for, but you're too worried, or you noticed you're interested in, in really wanting to do something like you're really passionate about something, but you just, you haven't gone around to it. You haven't allowed yourself to step into that space. I think that's when we kind of got to check in like, okay, what's really going on here? Like, you know, and usually we make up excuses like, Oh, it's not the right time or, Oh, I'll do that later. But I think when we kind of dig a little bit deeper, like, is it something about how we're thinking about ourselves and our abilities that's holding us back? Um, also, if it's something that you're thinking about constantly, right? Like you're going into work and you're feeling nervous and you're feeling tense and you're feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired. My boss is going to find out that I don't know what I'm doing. That would probably be a time to get support around it, to be able to kind of help you function um, to your to your best ability, right? So if it's impairing your functioning, it's impairing your day to day, that's when I think it would probably be a really good idea to just to just get that support um, in whatever way that means. It doesn't mean like a therapist, um, although I'm biased. I think everyone should should seek therapy, um, especially in this this world. Um, but that means maybe talking to a close friend or confiding in a family member or maybe someone at work that you're really close to that maybe they've experienced it, too. Um, so it doesn't always have to be some formal professional help. It can just be seeking out more information about it, too. Um, could be, could be good. What are some of the first steps that someone can take when they recognize that what they're experiencing might be imposter syndrome and they're, they're not in fact a fraud in whatever they're doing? I mean, I think it's just to get like anything, just get educated on it, just sort of learn more about it, learn, learn the experience of it, maybe kind of, you know, good old Google can be, you know, good and bad. <laughs> but even, you know, I think with this kind of thing, you know, this could be a positive thing where you're just like Googling it and trying to find information because there's so much out there. Um, and, and I think you start to realize of how normal this can be because it's such an internal experience and we think, we think it's just us. We're the only ones that feel this way because um, we're, we're the ones in our own world. So when we start to branch out and start to realize, oh no, there's so many other people. I mean, uh, Meryl Streep, for goodness sakes, um, has like quotes out there and I've I won't, I'll botch the quote that she said, but essentially she was talking about like, why would one people want to see me? Like, I'm not that good anyway. I mean, we're talking about Meryl Streep, right? Like multiple Oscars, you know, all that kind of stuff. So to, to kind of also see that even people that we deem as just experts and amazing and extraordinary, they too have felt that way. So it, it can help sort of normalize it. Um, 
and make us feel less, less alone. So I think, I think researching, right. And, and talking about it and just kind of putting out your experience to someone that's safe and, and trusted, um, I think is the very first step. Um, and plus there's, you know, there's other steps where you can actively engage in new skills and, you know, all that kind of stuff too. You talked about feeling a bit like a fraud when you went to grad school. I mean, how did you personally overcome those feelings and kind of step into your own yeah. as you are today? Yeah, I mean, um, that took a while. <laughs> so I would say, I would say most of grad school, not most, all of grad school, I felt that way. Like, and, and you could see it when I look back at my younger self, you could see how it was manifesting, right? The anxiety would increase whenever I felt really fraudulent. And then I would kick into gear. Like one of the cycles of imposter syndrome is either overworking or procrastinating or a little bit of both. And I went the overworking. I was like, okay, Okay. So if I'm going to feel this way, I'm going to make sure this presentation, this, this, or whatever is going to be perfect. And, you know, I'm going to eat. Right. So, um, it, it took a huge toll on my mind and body, like by the end of it, by when I was, you know, uh, sitting down for licensure and things like that. I mean, I was depleted on every level possible. So I think it wasn't until after licensure where I got a little bit of a breather and like, okay, let's like recalibrate here. And my practice started going and, and these different things. And I started to research it more on my own and understand it a little bit more deeply, then I started to kind of be able to build new belief systems and untangle the belief systems that are underneath there that were really not helpful. So I always say this even in, in therapy, like it is a marathon. It is not a sprint, right? It takes so much time to kind of sort of explore these things and unwind them, not to say that it's, it's impossible to, to move past it. Um, it just takes a lot of dedicated practice and awareness, right? Being aware of when it's coming up. Because um, for me, I mean, I definitely, it's definitely substantially more manageable now, but anytime I have something brand new, like career-wise that I haven't done before, like uh, recently, I, I mean, a couple of months ago, I was doing like a collaboration with, um, with Fitbit and talking about anxiety. And I had to do this like live sort of, you know, talking about things that I totally know about, you know, I talk about it all the time, but it was like on this like camera and I was on the spot and, oh man, it came up and it came up loud. So, you know, it's still going to pop up because we're human and, you know, sometimes things are more stressful than others. So, um, but yeah, like anything, it's just sort of daily practice, weekly practice um, to be able to kind of move through it and past it. You talked about overworking as being one of kind of like the habitual mm -hmm. products of imposter. Is there other things that are kind of like identifiers, like you are acting this way because you feel like an imposter? Yeah. So there, so um, the Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, who were the original two researchers, they initially kind of created this sort of cycle of imposter syndrome. And then it's kind of been built upon since then. But essentially like the way it goes is often for most people, you'll get some sort of achievement related tasks. So something where you have to kind of show up and, you know, um, be vulnerable in some way or whatnot, or just some achievement task. And that ignites anxiety, right? Worry about it. Am I going to do it right? Do I know how to do this? Um, are they going to think it's good enough? That kind of thing that then triggers that response of either overworking or procrastinating or a little bit of both, right? Like I'm going to push this off because this is too much, or I'm going to dive in there and I'm going to stay up for two days straight and I'm going to make sure it's perfect. Then, then you do it, or you say you do the presentation. We'll say that that's what it is. You do the presentation and you just get all this relief. It's just this instant relief. Um, and then you get the, the feedback. Oh my gosh, that was so amazing. That was so great. But what happens is you don't internalize it. You're like, oh no, you know, it was because I worked so hard or because I did it, you know, last minute and whatever. So you just, you minimize it and you completely like just minimize the, the actual success that you really put all that energy into. And then it just starts back over, right? So it's just this, this constant cycle of um, not recognizing um, your effort and the energy and the intention and your, your insight or intellect or skills or whatever it may be. Um, you just kind of just act as if it, it, it was a fluke in a way. Um, so yeah, that's pretty common. I find I get into this really kind of unproductive cycle of feeling like the stars need to be completely aligned before I can execute an important project. So whether like the weather needs to be nice outside, I need to be in some sort of 
good mood. Um, everything needs to be perfect for that project to come off successfully. And then what I'll do is I'll keep putting it off until the deadline, then I'll execute, not feel like it's good enough. And it's this whole vicious cycle. Do you think that type of thing is common? A hundred percent. Yes. And I think there's some elements of kind of, you know, you know, carving out your workspace that makes sense where you want to kind of be able to be in the zone. And so I think that's like super normal, but that perfectionism piece definitely comes in hot <laughs> and it, because it's, it's trying to protect you, right. It's trying to keep you safe of humiliation or embarrassment or, 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 or someone deeming you as not good enough or fraudulent. Right. So it, it's that anxiety that we feel um, and then, you know, anxiety often gets a bad rap, but in general, like it's there to protect us. It's there to kind of keep us safe, but unfortunately it just gets so loud that it kind of can hinder us. Um, but yes, that is a very, a very common, you know, sort of chain of events that happen. So you're saying that basically anxiety is kind of like this natural occurrence that yeah. we've as humans always sort of felt. Yeah. So, so to be more specific, so, so we have a biologically wired stress response, right? So if we think of the caveman days, um, we were, this response kept us alive, right? So, so when we would see what we thought was like a lion, our stress response would, would ignite and then kind of engage all systems, our sympathetic nervous system, the fight flight would go off. It'd be like, okay, let's mobilize, let's keep safe. Let's do what we need to do. And, and that sympathetic nervous system, that fight flight does all kinds of things in our body, right? It shuts down the digestive for a second. Cause we don't need that when we're fighting or flighting. Um, it suppresses immunity. It does all kinds of things to the body. Essentially it releases cortisol and adrenaline, which are the stress hormones that make us move, right? Like mobilize, like it sends blood to the limbs. Um, and it gets us going. So fast forward to modern days, the, the, the problem is, even though that stress response still is, we need it to keep us safe, right? Like if someone breaks in front of us, stress response, you know, detects the amygdala in the brain detects danger, 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 kick into gear and, and we need to respond to this. The problem is the brain can't differentiate between a real threat and a perceived threat. It responds the exact same way. And even thoughts, right? If you have a thought of some sort of threat, it can ignite that stress response. So the, the issue is, is that we're almost in this anxious stress response cycle most of the day sometimes, right? So, and this imposter experience ignites that same stress response. And so it's just this endless cycle of your body just being activated when it doesn't need to be activated. Um, and that can cause long-term, you know, digestive issues and kind of chronic fatigue and all kinds of things. Like when they say stress kills, <laughs> it's true. It's very true, but it's so normalized now. And it, in a way it's like glamorized of like, you know, being busy and, and active and, and whatnot, but it's so not good for our body because our body so desperately needs that recalibration. It needs to activate that parasympathetic part of our nervous system, which is the rest and digest part. So, you know, and these two nervous systems kind of go on and off, not, not really, not scientifically. If some, someone's listening to this very scientific, I'm probably not saying it like exactly right, but in a way to think about it. it's kind of like an on off um, throughout our day but unfortunately most of the time especially if we're really anxious that sympathetic is going to be on and and the body can never recover right because we're in that fight flight mode um, so yes it's there to protect us we want it there we we want to know that we need to break when the person in front of us is breaking on the freeway um, but we also need to be able to kind of find the skills and the coping strategies that when it's not an actual threat and we don't need to respond like it is, how can we kind of recalibrate the system versus letting our, you know, letting the anxiety just take over, um, if that made sense. The way you've explained this just makes it so much easier to understand why naturally so many of us are in an anxious state these days. I really am interested in, you mentioned some of the physical manifestations of anxiety, like digestive upset, what are some of the other ones and what can that kind of look like? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, the digestive system, I think it's unfortunately just, just wrecked, you know, when, when we have that, that, that stress response constantly going off and I don't know the exact biochemicals of exactly what's happening, but like, if you talk to like a naturopath, they'll talk all about like the microbiome getting very off kiltered, which creates a lot of cramping, IBS stuff, those kinds of things. Um, other physical things. I mean, just sort of muscle aches, like soreness, right? Because if you think about the fight flight mode, you're tensing, 
it's like you're bracing yourself for, for the lion to come eat you when there's no, you know, lions that are eating us now, but like, that's essentially what the body's doing. It's bracing itself. And so the muscles can be really tight. It creates just fatigue, just very low energy. Because if you think about it again, the body is overworking trying to keep us safe and we're not letting it kind of rest and relax. And so that can kind of kick into gear and then add in everything else that you do in life, right? If you're a mom or you're going to school or whatever, there's, there's other stressors that are happening. So it just compounds. Um, and yes, there, I mean, there's, those are the ones that off the top of my head, but there are so many, so many elements of how it impacts the body um, and long-term how that just is not super helpful at all. Um, yeah, it's rough. <laughs> Once you have one of these kind of like episodes of either imposter or maybe you have something as extreme as an anxiety attack. I mean, I've had someone close to me who went their whole life without having an anxiety attack, had an anxiety attack, and then ever since then had bad anxiety. Oh, Do, yeah. does, does it often get triggered and then you can't get yourself out of it? Yeah, well, and it just kind of depends um, sort of. So that person, that's a very common example of like, they've never had anxiety. They kind of have a panic attack of some kind. And then it's like, it's a thing then, right? Because if you think about it, then there's a fear associated to that experience. Then you start to fear having that experience again, which then can kind of ignite that experience versus like, hey, this is really normal. The situation you were in makes sense why this happened, right? So being able to adaptively intervene when those things happen and have the skills and the strategies to help re, you know, sort of calibrate the system is so vital, but most of us don't get taught these things right? We get taught somewhat about our emotions in like kindergarten, first grade, and then it just kind of <laughs> falls off. And then as we get older, we have all these challenges that come our way. And we usually, unless we're really at, like actively engaging in this kind of work and our emotional health, we tend to not have the skills in our back pocket unless we seek them out. So, so yes, it can be, it can be so helpful to kind of learn our own triggers and kind of how um, our body is responding to them and kind of what happens. Like for me with anxiety, it's, it's very, it's very physical. So chest really heavy. Um, my shoulders are usually up by my ears. Right. And so those cues that I've kind of picked up on over the years help indicate like, Ooh, your body's tense. Like, Ooh, it's, it's going into that response. Like how can I maybe roll my shoulders back and down? How can I kind of stretch a little, um, breathe, right. The breath, like everyone says, Oh, just breathe. But seriously, like the power of the breath can, can alter the nervous system. So when we slowly breathe and we're extending our exhale, that activates that parasympathetic, that rest, digest part of our nervous system um, versus sympathetic. Think about like when you're super stressed, usually you're breathing really like short, like it's like, like panic attacks. It's really short breaths. You can't get a full breath in because the system is, is working. So breathing can kind of calibrate it. So there's so many skills and strategies. It's just finding what works for you and finding, um, and understanding your experience of it um, that can help re-regulate, recalibrate, and get you kind of back into more of like a homeostasis. I know one thing I struggle with and a lot of people I know struggle with are these kind of thoughts that it's like a domino effect. Like you have one negative thought about yourself and then that leads to another and another and another. And by the time you know it, you're calling yourself a fraud. Like it just gets out of control. How do you kind of stop these negative thought patterns in their path? Yeah, first, so normal, right? You know, with, with anxiety, so much of it happens in, in our minds and, and we create these stories and I call it the, the never ending rabbit hole, right? Like you're just going down and down and down and down. So I think the first step is being aware of it happening right? And, and not judging yourself that it's happening, but just being more aware of like, ooh, I'm going down the rabbit hole. There I'm going. Um, and then I think the next step is like, once you get really familiar with being aware of the cycle, you can then start to kind of adaptively intervene. So like, okay, what am I thinking? Like, is this helpful right now? Like, do I want to spend my energy thinking this way? Like, am I maybe jumping to conclusions or assuming the worst or whatever it may be? Um, and I don't know if you've ever heard of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, you have. Okay. So they, that whole approach is, is evidence-based, right? So they look at how, and it's kind of like a triangle. So if you think of a triangle at the very top is our thoughts. So the rabbit hole, right? What we're thinking, our thoughts affect how we feel and then how we feel affects how we behave. So if we're thinking I'm a fraud, we're probably feeling sad, disappointed, you know, all these feelings. And then we probably respond by maybe avoiding 
or shutting down, right? So we have to just kind of understand that cycle. Um, and then there's different ways to intervene. I think one of my go-to um, that you could do at any time is just become more present, right? Because anxiety in the future are BFF, right? Usually depression in the past are like BFF. But when you can get present, it's harder to go in those head spaces of anxiety and, and kind of depression. So, so say you, you start to become more aware of your rabbit hole and you're like, oh, there it is. What can I do to get present right now? Like, can I immerse myself in nature or step outside and just absorb what's happening? I mean, I know it's snowing there right now, so maybe you wouldn't want to do that, but, or it could be helpful because it snaps you, it snaps you out of that like spiral because it's cold and like maybe pick up some of the snow, hold it in your hand, like anything to get you grounded in the moment um, can be really helpful. Um, and that's usually, you know, what I encourage people um, just initially to, to, to practice is just this present minded kind of focus and reshift because um, that can also calm the nervous system because it's like, okay, we're fine, we're safe, we're no one, you know, we're good. Um, so, yeah. I want to talk about social media because yeah. I can only imagine that social media has just made everybody mm-hmm. low key default anxious. Yeah. Do you think this kind of comparison online has elevated our anxiety as society? A million percent. Yes. I mean, and, and I only know that because of my own experience, right? And I know that because of my clients' experiences. But like, if you just think about it, like rationally, you're sitting on this, this, first of all, you're, you're so zoned in on not the present, right? You're in other people's worlds, right? We're scrolling and we're in their world as we absorb their picture, our brains processing it, trying to understand it. And and you're scrolling so quickly. So think about how much your brain is working. So just the fatigue and the energy exertion of scrolling on social media alone is bad or not helpful. Um, But yes, I think then the comparison piece and the stories we start to create and then wondering, you know, about ourselves and if we're as good or it can also create like a feeling of isolation, right? Like say, say, you know, you're in the influencer world and you see some influencers pairing up and collaborating and doing things together. And you're like, oh my gosh, like, what about me? Like, why didn't they ask me? Right. So then you start to have this whole dialogue in your mind about not being as good. So yes, it it can be very, very poisonous um, for lack of a better word to our just internal thought process and system um, because we're creating that story and we don't know, you know, we don't know if that's actually true or there could have been something, you know, with them collaborating together that they knew each other in some sort of way or whatever, but the story that we then put on it then just, you know, yeah, goes into that comparison spiral. Um, So yeah, you know, the social media breaks and detoxes, I think are so important. Do you put limitations on yourself for like scrolling time? Yeah. And I, I mean, not all the time, so I'm human too. And it happens and I'm like, what am I doing? Um, but I've noticed as I've <laughs> focused more on the professional account, I've noticed myself kind of move away from my personal account, um, and limit the amount of things. I think also when something is happening in my personal life or I'm going through something, um, and feel like social media wouldn't be the best, it would be triggering in some sort of way. I try to just completely cut it out. Um, so that I'm living more presently and more in my lane, if you will. Um, but yeah, it can be hard if it's part of your practice, obviously you yourself, right? Like that's a big piece of your, your business and what you do. So it, it's hard to, you know, you have to be very kind of thoughtful and, and um, constantly checking in with yourself of, you know, how much time am I spending on this? Like what, how can I set boundaries for this week if I feel a little bit burnt out? So I think with anything in life, we constantly need to be checking in what we need, what would be helpful? What could I maybe leave, you know, at the door that's not so helpful for this week. So it's never like a perfect science, but um, just being aware of it, I think is helpful. It's really tough because I feel like the algorithms, you especially notice this on TikTok, the way they scroll, they've actually been designed to be addictive and hours can pass and you're still scrolling and then you feel guilty because you spent all of this time on these social media apps. But in reality, I feel like naturally it's very hard to tear yourself away when they've been designed to try and keep you on them. So those boundaries can be so hard. It's so hard, right? It's so hard. And I think, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. With that, that whole algorithm piece, like, yeah, it, it's, it's designed to make you be on it more and engage on it more. And just like anyone, right. It's designed to suck us into this, but yeah, we have to kind of constantly pull back and be like, okay, is this serving me today? Right. Like, yes, sometimes it's really amazing. You have connections or you see a good friend and their trip and it looks really cool. Right. There's elements of it that can be wonderful. Right. Social media has done a lot of cool things and you know, just like anything in moderation. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a balance that I think everyone's been working on. I think just phone usage in general, not just social media, but phone usage in general is something that I think we all are like, okay, this needs to, <laughs> to be different. It's tough. And I'm interested. I mean, with COVID, have you seen just an uptick in people being anxious for, I guess, for so many reasons around this? Oh my this? gosh. Yes. Yes. Pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've seen it more the latter half of the year, right? I think in the first part of the year, it was just more like shock, like what is happening? Okay, let's just adjust. Let's, you know, but yeah, I think even more so now a lot I've noticed um, recently is social anxiety being more of an issue than it ever has been. And, and like, I'd have clients come in and, and say like, I've never, I've never had this. Like, I don't know why I feel this way. And it's like, okay, well, let's take a step back and look at this, this, you know, very different world that we're living in where you've been isolated in so many ways. Like you haven't had to do like practice going out, chatting with people and putting yourself out there. Cause it takes a lot of energy. So it makes sense why you'd be a little bit anxious around it. So yeah, I mean, anxiety in general, health anxiety, worrying about the health of themselves or their family members, that's definitely increased. Um, yeah. And, and again, anxiety is such a normal and shared human experience, but I think when we then are in environments where it's can be amplified, of course, it's going to be harder to control or harder to, to manage, um, which is tough, super tough. Approaching this from a sort of self-care perspective, I'm interested in if there's any data or studies that you know about that correlate the food you're eating and the way you're taking care of yourself to your everyday anxiety. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would definitely say I, I, I know a little about it, but I don't know enough to kind of talk through it all. But I do know that, yes, diet has a complete impact on your mood and can impact also anxiety. I mean, if you just think about just basic things like caffeine and sugar. Right. So if we're <laughs> if we're kind of, you know, putting more stimulants in, into our bodies and then we already have sort of an anxious disposition, that might be, you know, might not be super helpful. Um, and also depends on your body and how your the foods interact with your system and this and that. But, yes, I think food and nutrition um, is a big part. And I definitely come from a more holistic view of, of um, you know, when clients come in and trying to see sort of the whole picture of, of what their lifestyle looks like. And right. So if you have a client coming in and they're you know talking about anxiety, it's so, it's so bad. And then I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, how many like coffees do you have? And they're like, Oh, like six. Like, oh, <laughs> well maybe, you know, like let's just do the low hanging fruit here. Maybe let's like pair that back or if they're having it too close to bedtime. Right. Some of these things we just don't necessarily totally think of, even though when we, we are aware of it, we're like, Oh, duh. Like that's probably not helpful. Um, but that can be the same for other things like sugar and, and things like that. So, um, and there's tons of amazing, amazing therapists that have both kind of their therapy practice. And they also do sort of the nutritional health piece and pair those together. Um, and there's definitely studies out there. I don't have any on the top of my head, but there's definitely tons of studies out there around those correlations. Um, yeah, what we put in our bodies obviously impacts our bodies um, in very different ways. Do you think things like exercise and sleep obviously move the needle as well? Very much, very much. And yes, we, we've been harp, you know, People have harped on that for years and years and decades and decades, but at the end of the day, those are sort of the foundational elements of, of what keeps our system going and, and in a sort of healthy way, right? So when we're moving our bodies, um, we're working through that energy and we're releasing different, you know, stress hormones and um, um, endorphins are being, you know, ignited, right? So the feel good chemicals are, are happening. So yes. And plus like just moving our bodies makes us psychologically feel better. We're like, okay, we're good. Yeah. Um, and sleep, of course, right? Like if we really think about sleep and how important it is to like give our brains and our physical bodies a time to recalibrate and rest. Cause if we go back to that anxiety and the stress response and we're say, we're always up here, we're always up super high. And we, then we're not getting enough sleep. I mean, think about like your body is literally, it's like a car, 
like doing a cross country trip without stopping for gas or changing the oil or anything like that. Right. Like it just, it will go maybe, <laughs> but the efficiency of it will be, will be compromised. Um, so yeah, I mean, the basics are usually like the answer and <laughs> that we live in such a quick fix world that it can be frustrating, but like, I mean, it really does come down to like sleep, diet, exercise, social connection, you know, all those kinds of things. I'm always interested how practitioners put these things into practice themselves. So I hope you don't mind me asking, but what are some of the things that you do on a day-to-day basis to help keep that anxiety in check? Yeah, yeah. That and definitely it changes week to week, right? Like I think for me, um, I'm a disciplined person, but not like super, super structured. Um, I also have a toddler. So, you know, he makes things a little bit more wild in my day to day. But yes, my my main sort of bigger goals every week is moving my body in some sort of way. So if I am doing like a full on like hit workout, or if I'm just doing a walk, or if I'm doing maybe just kind of like 20 minutes of strength training, some sort of way to move my body, I, I want to do almost every day. And then if I can't sort of formally meditate, which I think can be so helpful, I usually use like a guided, like either calm or headspace or something like that. But if I can't do like sort of a formal sit meditation, then I'll focus on mindfulness moments, right? So instead of jumping on my, I have a tendency to jump on my phone while I'm driving, I'll call my mom or call someone. And that's just like a way to like still keep my mind busy, but I'll try to kind of, okay, no, like no phone, turn off the music, just notice, notice as you're driving, what's happening in front of me. That could be a very kind of easy, mindful moment. And and as I do those throughout the day, it almost kind of um, offers me the same benefits as if I would sit for like a 10 minute thing. So that's part of it. Um, Actually, more recently, um, journaling has been back in the queue of journaling at night, just kind of getting out thoughts, sort of just externalizing things, Um, especially when, you know, I'm going through my own stuff personally, journaling is usually a very helpful tool. Um, And then connection is usually another thing, like trying to, to connect with people that I love and trust and feel safe around and, and feeling, um, I think with friendships, when you're really feeling comfortable with certain friends, COVID makes it hard, but like it gets you more in the present, right? It gets you out of your head, out of your, you know, just turmoil. Sometimes it's happening internally and it gets you more present with, with the world and with other people and other experiences. So those would be like my main ones, I would say. Um, but it shifts, right? It just, it just changes depending on kind of what's happening, what's going on. Do you think there's anyone who walks this earth who doesn't experience anxiety? (laughs) I mean, you know, maybe like the Dalai Lama. I don't, yeah, I think, I think there's, there's some people that have done such a, a, profound sort of work within themselves to get to a place of stillness and, and non-reaction, right? I think like I'm, I love like the Buddhist philosophy and I love sort of um, yogic philosophy. And I, so I've been studying that a lot lately. Um, And I think individuals who really sort of embrace those philosophies can do a much better job more so to regulate their system, to kind of notice their emotions and not respond or react, right? So I think some people can manage better than others. And I think it's more just because of not necessarily like who they are as people, but just what they've, they've made a priority and what they're, they're focusing on. Um, I think we're all, we're all able to get to that place where we don't experience it as much. I just think it takes a lot of work. Um, and sometimes it, you know, sometimes it's just not in the cards for some people to do that work. So yeah, I mean, I think most of us experience anxiety. Again, it's part of the stress response. So technically we all kind of do. It's just, it's just how prolonged, right? Like anxiety is then kind of the aftermath of the stress response. It kind of lingers. Um, so everyone experiences stress, um, but like full-fledged anxiety, you know, maybe not as much, but um, yeah, I think it's there throughout life. You have this incredible Instagram account with a whole bunch of infographics that really practically break down anxiety tips and symptoms. And I'm super interested your journey with that. Did you see an influx of interest right away when you started sharing this type of content? Yeah. So, I mean, I started that when I was in my postdoc year and it really, I started it 
because it was like a thing that I felt like I could control. Right. Cause you know, in grad school, there's just, you just are working towards working towards and you're always working under people. And so I think it was something that gave me motivation to be like, okay, eventually I can do my own thing. And at that time, honestly, there were not a lot of therapists on it. And this was only like a handful of years ago. Um, and so I just kind of, I don't even know what I was posting at that time. If you scroll all the way down, I think it was like random quotes and random pictures. Um, but then, yeah, I think the more it became like a thing of like mental health providers to be on there, you know, providing psychoeducation and things like that. And when I kind of shifted into more of like the infographics and adding a little bit more information and, um, more of that psychoeducation kind of stuff, it started to grow substantially. And I think anxiety, um, and imposter syndrome, those topics have always gotten a big response in the sense of like, oh my gosh, this is so relatable. High functioning anxiety is another one that's like really relatable. It seems like, so yeah, it's, it's grown, it's grown pretty quickly and pretty, um, steadily, like as, as these topics, I think I've been zoning in on. Um, but you know, I've kind of this past week, I've sort of shifted gears and like started to explore other topics just to like give my mind a break of imposter syndrome. Um, but yes, on the, on, if you are interested in it, um, I have like a little highlight that saves all of the imposter syndrome content specifically. So it, it kind of takes you through all the different, like what it is, the five types, like all those things. And when you talk about high functioning anxiety, what do you actually mean by that? Yeah. So high functioning. So this is not like a formal clinical diagnosis at all. I don't even know who actually created the term, but essentially it's someone who's, is, who, who experiences anxiety, but wouldn't be clinically diagnosed with it. So essentially it's not impairing their ability to function in the world, but yet they're experiencing a lot of anxious type symptoms. So, I mean, I mean, I would say like the classic kind of example would be maybe like someone that just on the outside looks really successful, um, looks like they have it all together. They're like, you know, doing all the things, managing it. And they kind of, from the outside, maybe appear very, you know, um, non-anxious. Um, I myself could identify with high function and anxiety, but on the inside, they're like really worried about this or wondering about that or scared about this. Right. Um, so it's tendency, like this internal experience is very anxious sort of, you know, uh, manifestation, but, on the outside, it doesn't really look like it's impairing because someone that's um, diagnosed with like generalized anxiety or social um, social anxiety or whatever, usually the big like differentiator, differentiator, oh my God, different, you know what I'm saying. You're uh, good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is, um, is if it's impairing their ability to function. And if it is, that's kind of when it's more clinical versus a high functioning is they're functioning, but they're still totally experiencing it, which I think most of us, you know, are probably high functioning anxiety. I think this world has created high functioning anxiety humans in so many ways. I'm interested your opinion on this hustle culture that we see kind of um, on social media where coaches are like, you've got to grind and hustle and don't sleep. Do you think that this type of attitude is contributing to our society's high functioning anxiety? I mean, yeah, like I, I definitely think if a person's not paying attention to their internal cues and, and to their, what their body's saying, what their mind is saying, yes, I think it can be completely damaging to the, to the physical body and, and the emotional mind. Um, you know, different people operate at different levels, right? So one person may be able to kind of tolerate a little bit more than the other, also depending how they're raised and things like that. But yeah, I think anything that is like hustle, hustle, go, go, produce, be successful, you know, those kinds of messages can be very draining. I mean, it's, it's draining even thinking about it. So yeah, I think it's just so important for each and every person to kind of, again, check in with them, what their needs are, what's not getting met, what's being pushed to the side, um, what's a priority and what's not a priority. How can we shift those priorities from time to time um, and try to recalibrate and balance as much as we can. But it's a, it's a, it's a lifelong thing, right? Like, I don't know if any of us are ever going to reach balance. <laughs> um, right. Unless you, you know, move to a very remote place and decide to do a different kind of work, right? Like it's possible, but living in this like modern world and um, I, yeah, I think it's just something that is part of your daily, daily practices in so many ways. You said you're shifting your content a bit right now and I'm interested in what you have in store and where your interest is lying right now. 
Yeah. I mean, with the content, it's funny because like most of the time I just do what like I find interesting at that moment. <laughs> um, but I'm like a big, uh, a big believer and focus on kind of the mind body. And so um, today, like I posted, um, like, I think it was like five or six somatic strategies to help with anxiety. So how can we and somatic meaning body based. So how can we kind of regulate the body through these different sort of somatic um uh, intentional practices. So I posted about that today. Um, I think I just imposter syndrome myself out and just posted about it for so many months that I just like, okay, I think that's enough for now. So yeah, usually my week, I don't even, I don't even necessarily always, I mean, they're planned out a little bit, but I usually, if something comes up for me, like the other day or the other week, I, um, something was happening just personally for me. And I was kind of working through acceptance and just like, accepting this this news that I didn't expect or didn't want to happen and so that got me thinking about acceptance and so then I, I put a post together on that and disappointment so it's sometimes it's very influential of like what's going on in my own my own life um or clients right sometimes I get a lot of inspiration from clients and then I'll kind of like talk about a topic from there um so yeah I don't have any like specific plans of like specific content but yeah it's usually just like organic and what I find fascinating. It's really funny because I actually work in almost exactly the same way. Like I feel like there's this vision of content creators that they have this calendar up on their wall with like three months of content planned. And that might be the case for some, but the majority of content creators I know, and I know myself, I wake up in the morning and 90% of the time, I have no idea what recipe I'm wanting to film that day. I'll film a piece of content in the morning and it's up in the afternoon and it's this like really back-end unorganized process. But from the front end it might not look that way and it's funny it kind of ties into that conversation we had earlier where everybody else thinks that the other person has it all together because of what is displayed online but in reality the majority of us don't no not all the time maybe they do for a week but the next they don't right and we have this vision that like somebody's operating at this level all of the time and that's like so not realistic and so not true right so so yeah which I think that's another reason why social media can be such a you know pitfall is we just see the highlights right we see all this amazing content and we're like shoot like how, yeah. how are they coming up with that where you know where do they have the time I've even had people say that to me and I'm like oh trust me like sometimes it is a hot mess. <laughs> like sometimes I'm just throwing things like it is not, you know, coordinated, whatever, but like, but from their perception of it, it's, you know, cause it's, it's, it's all color coordinated and it's all aesthetically pleasing. So it gives off this impression, like it's super organized and detailed and, you know, got, got the stuff together when it doesn't, it doesn't at all. <laughs> I'm super interested in like mind body connection and everything mm-hmm. like that as well. Could you talk a little bit about, I think you said somatic ways of dealing with anxiety. Yeah. So, um, so somatic again is, you know, soma means body, right? So it's just, um, so there's a, there's a whole, um, approach in the therapeutic world called somatic experiencing, right? And it's just essentially bringing the body into therapy. So a lot of therapy is very traditional talk therapy. It's very cognitive, very heady. Um, but so much of our experiences live in our bodies, um, right? We feel emotions in our bodies. We feel the anxiety in our bodies. And so um, when we bring in the body to help kind of cope, um, it can help, you know, further re-regulate on just a deeper level. So if we're just thinking about our thoughts, like we're just hitting kind of our, our mind, we're not hitting the body. So somatic meaning something as simple as um, when you feel a little anxious is standing up tall, shoulders back and down, you know, um, sort of spine neutral and, and neck neutral and grounding your feet into the ground. So making sure you're not leaning to one side because that can cause tension in the body if you're kind of leaned over. So you're really rooting your feet and your soles. Yeah, you can even do it when you're sitting too. But really rooting yourself into the ground can you know, kind of create that sense of stability. Um, the other one actually in today's post was talking about um, um, sort of the neck and being able to gently kind of move the neck around. Cause if you think about it with anxiety or anything like that, like we tense, 
we tense up our neck and it gets kind of stretched and, and it doesn't necessarily like feel as good. So, you know, being able to kind of just move the neck like back and forth and they, these things seem so subtle and like not as impactful and maybe they're not going to be super impactful the first time you do them. But if you're constantly, you're consistently sort of thinking about, okay, how, how am I standing? Like, what's my neck doing? Um, or how am I sitting in a chair? Right. So if you're super nervous, like supporting the torso by having both sit bones, so both kind of booty cheeks on the, the chair and really like, like settling into it again, brings you in the present number one and, and two helps just sort of the body kind of calm a little bit more. Um, so again, they're not like magic pills and they'll take anxiety completely away, but it, it's just ways to kind of slowly, um, build in other ways of being and, 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 um, holding yourself. Um, cause anxiety again, can, can do, can wreak havoc just on how we hold our bodies and, um, I, like I said it before, the shoulders up to my ears is always a thing I notice. Like I'll be reading something and it's like, my shoulders are all, I'm like, what is going on? Like drop your shoulders, like put them back. Right. Cause it's, it's just this like instinctual response. Um, so if we can notice those things. It starts to help even retrain our brain, um, and helps kind of like create a new neural pathway to be like, okay, we don't need to do that all the time. Um, so yeah, practice, practice though. And I guess focusing on these physical things when the spiraling thoughts come up can maybe help like yes. stop that from getting out of control. Yes. Definitely. Because if you're thinking about it, you're so much in your head. But when you then right. bring focus and attention into the physical body, then you start to become really present with what's happening. Um, and so it, it gets your mind off of that rabbit hole and, and gets you in your body and in, in just your your present moment. And I think too, with even kind of the, um, you know, standing tall and like really making sure you're balanced in both feet can be so helpful to outside again, maybe not in the snow. Um, but you know, like if it's, you know, nice and springy, right. Like having your bare feet in the grass and like feeling what the grass feels like, like how often do we just take notice of like what something feels like and like what something looks like, like, um, we don't normally, we just kind of take it for granted and move on. But in reality, like it can bring a lot of like different sensations and, uh, feelings, um, just to kind of slow down and absorb. So I've heard that grounding can even help with jet lag. Like when you get to a new country, you should take off your shoes when you're have ground available and uh, put your feet in the dirt in the new country. And I, I actually believe that. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely, I think anytime we ground ourselves, I think it can be really helpful. Um, and again, it might not like take away the anxiety completely, but that's also not our intention. Our intention is not to take away anxiety completely. Our intention is to, decrease the intensity and the frequency of it, right? Because it's somewhat helpful because it helps tell us information and, and keep us safe and stuff. So I think we often have like this misunderstanding of like, it needs to go away. It's terrible. It's bad. It's awful. It needs to go away forever. Um, and same thing with the imposter syndrome stuff. It's like, you know, it's telling us that there's something about our belief systems or how we're viewing ourselves that's maybe not as helpful. So it's actually giving us information to be like, okay, this could be something to work on, right? Like we feel like we're not good enough and nothing that we do is good enough. That might be a belief system that we probably should pay attention to um, versus letting it continue to erode our thoughts and, you know, everything that we do. I know um, you launched a course a little while back that kind of goes deeper into this. And I'm sure after listening, there will be quite a few people who want to delve deeper. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how people can learn more? Yeah. So it's called When You Feel Like a Fraud, um, an imposter syndrome e-course um, and including like a six step guide to kind of decrease the intensity and frequency of it. So essentially the, so it's kind of more of like a mini course, I would say. So it's not super overwhelming content wise, but it's divided into two parts. The first part is about 45 minutes or so of content and what that does. And this is one of the strategies of how to manage imposter syndrome is that it gets at the roots of it. So it really gets at like what your experience is and what it's rooted in. Is it childhood stuff? Is it parent relationships? Is it something that happened in middle school that you got in, then you internalize something about who you are, right? So it really kind of digs in the roots and, and understanding of the experience. And then the second part dives into these six steps um, that I created just based on my own experiences and, and some of the research that I kind of, you know, reviewed and whatnot. And it comes with a course workbook that guides you through um, these steps. Um, and it, there's some journal prompts, there's some different exercises to engage in. Um, and that course, so you can find it if you go to my Instagram, which is drdr.kellyvincent. 
um, there's a link in the bio that then can send you to um, where you can access the course. I'll make sure to include a link to that course as well as your Instagram account in the show notes. This has just been ridiculously educational. I found it so helpful personally, and I'm sure the listeners will as well. So I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on and sharing some of your amazing knowledge. Yeah, thank you for having me. And two, just by the way, with the course piece, I'm super um, happy to offer a 15% off and I can make a code. We can oh, make yeah. it a plant, I guess. We'll just say yes. that plant. Um, so if you want to use that code um, to get 15% off of it, then yeah, happy to do that. Because I know so many of us experience it and so many of us need support. So um, Perfect. Yeah. I'll include that in the, uh, in the show notes as well. Thank you so well, much for coming on. Thank you. Well, folks, that is it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Plant Pod. I know I say this just about every week, but that was like my favorite episode ever. I found it so personally educational for, I guess, the anxiety I experience on a day-to-day basis, and I hope that you did as well. If you enjoyed this episode, a five-star review would literally mean the world to me. And if you want to share it in your Instagram stories, remember to tag me at PlantU and Dr. Kelly Vincent so we can share it with the world. Thank you again for your support, and I will see you next week.